Um, oh, and, and, and they may have enough going for them that they're not finding themselves homeless and penniless like, like this guy was. But still yet, they're, they're not dealing with the sin. They're, they're kind of they're shirking it. They're not thinking about it. They're putting it back there. And they're just, they're just running away from their sin. Well, my text this morning, my title, my message this morning is entitled, Dealing with Sin. Rather than running from it, let's deal with our sin because that's what our, our text is about this morning. So if you haven't done so, I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 John. We've been going through 1 John. Last week we looked at verses chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. This week we're chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Next Sunday, Lord willing, we'll be in chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. And so you should look and see what, what uh, John would have for us. But here, as I read these verses for you, I want you to think to yourself, okay, what, what do these verses have to do with dealing with sin? That's what I've titled this message. That's kind of the big idea that I've captured over these, these two verses is dealing with sin. John writes this, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Well, dealing with sin, here's my first point. First point is simply this, don't sin. Don't sin. You want to deal with it? Just avoid it. Uh, Run from it. Right? People run from their sin, meaning they run from their consequences of sin rather than dealing with their sin. I just say run from your sin. That is the message of the first half of verse 1, right? My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. There are things that John is saying that's going to help us battle our own sin. Now, this is one of the purpose statements in the, the, the epistle here of 1 John. We've already seen one of them, chapter 1, verse 4. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Actually, it might be we're writing these things so your joy may be complete. You can, you can summarize and say, we're writing these things so that joy will be complete. John was writing for his joy. He's writing for the joy of his hearers. And I just say this, church family, your greatest joy will come when you are walking with God. It's your greatest joy. And though sin may be attractive at the moment, it fails to bring joy in the end. Sin is like the the caramel-covered poison apple. That upon seeing it, every child wants to take a big bite of that caramel-covered apple, only to find out that it's poison in the end. Oh, you know what? It actually tastes pretty good. But in the end, as sweet as it is on the outside, it is sour on the inside because it leads to death. It's like like a, a fish seeing the bait on a hook and the bait looks good maybe it's a live worm and the bait is good but that hook then brings him up to be found on a fisherman's platter that's what sin is and john's heart is that the people would heed the words this little letter a walk in the paths of righteousness and know the joy that it brings another purpose statement comes in chapter 2 verse 26 Look at it there. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. In John's day, there were false teachers seeking to pull them away from the faith. And John says, I want to set things straight for you. I don't want you to be deceived. It's it's no different today. Airwaves, internet, flooded with those trying to deceive you. 
trying to pull you away from the faith. Those can be secular voices, and those can, hear me now, be professing Christian voices. Just because someone names the name of Christ doesn't mean that everything that comes out of their mouth is good and right. In fact, many, many professing Christians actually lead people astray and, and lead them out of the flock. You remember Jesus spoke of the wolf in sheep's clothing? That is, inwardly there's a ravenous wolf, but outward has the donning the, the clothing of a sheep so that people come to, to trust that one. Because a sheep would run from a wolf. But a sheep maybe is attracted to a wolf that is covered in sheep's clothing. And so likewise, just, just today. And John's words were helpful to them in the first century. Because they, in the first century, they weren't denying Jesus. They were just shaping a different Jesus. Um, they, they weren't denying the, the realities of some things. They were just skewing it and bringing out the realities of, of other things. And as helpful as John's words, words were back then in the first century, they are helpful for us today. Writing these things about those who are trying to deceive you. Another statement comes right at the end of the book. Chapter 5, verse 13. These are verses, by the way, if you write in your Bible, I encourage you to write boxes around these verses. Be very good just so you see the, the whole purpose. It's for joy. It's for deception is false doctrine. And then here's the biggest one of all, which I've summarized, right? Do you have eternal life? That's what First John is about. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Fundamentally, this is the, the biggest purpose statement in the book. It's the grand reason why John wrote. He wrote because he wanted his readers to have full assurance that they indeed were in Christ, that they knew Jesus, they loved Jesus, and were following in His ways, that they would know and experience the forgiveness that Jesus would bring. And a few weeks ago, we considered this verse in light of the, the entire epistle. And remember I said there were a couple different tests that, that John's are going to kind of weave in and out all throughout the Gospel of John to say, uh, do you have eternal life? Well, well, how do you match up in this area? And, and how do you match up in this area? And how do you match up in this area? And in our small group, as we talked about these things, it came out that this is the old test. This is the old test. This is the obedience test. Right? We have assurance when we pass the obedience test. That is, walking rightly before the Lord. Obeying His commands when His commands aren't burdensome. 1 John 5, verse 3. He said that we'll have assurance when we pass the L. The obedience test. The L. The love test. That is, when we are loving the brothers. He said that we'll do well when we pass the doctrinal test. It's when we'll have assurance that we're worshiping the true Jesus. The One who has the power to save. And someone pointed out that it's O-L-D, the old test. The obedience, love, and doctrine test. Hope that helps you. And we pass these tests. Listen, we will have assurance that we have eternal life. If we don't pass these tests, we won't have assurance that we have eternal life. And that is what John is getting at in our purpose statement here today. My little children, chapter 2, verse 1, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Listen, the, the greatest path to assurance is through walking a life of righteousness. Right? In other words, right, when, when you come to faith in Christ and you see the transformation He brings in your life and you start walking in His ways, that's a great assurance that indeed God has saved you. And you're passing the old test. You're walking His ways. You're loving the brethren. You're, you're believing in the true Jesus. But listen, if you haven't experienced transformation, 
then you have little assurance that you are a believer. Or, or if you're in sin, if there's some, some sin that's tearing you down, it may, be, may be that you might not have assurance in this day. But you may have assurance when God is, is blessing you and walking in His ways. Now, it may be that whatever, we talk about backsliding Christians. There are backsliders. Those who come to faith and they're struggling in their sin. You know, we, we went over Psalm 73 in our prayer meeting today. Just That's talking about Asaph. He starts off verse 1, Surely God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart. But he said, As for me, I came close to stumbling. And he talked about how he, how he looked at the prosperity of the worldly and how they're fat in their death and how they have no pain or sorrow. And he says, I've kept my heart pure, but it's in vain. I've, I've reaped trouble and sorrow and difficulty, but, but they've pursued their pleasures and they're happy and joy. And, and he said, I almost, I almost went in with them until I saw their end. I thought they would be destroyed and I, I was renewed. My, I'm going I'm to trust God. There, there are people perhaps who are on the brink, perhaps engaged in it. But listen, if they're genuine, they'll come back and they'll be real. But in that time of which you're, you're doubting, you can't have assurance. Those aren't the days of assurance. Those are the days of testing, the days of assurance. Though God has saved you, protected you, safe, elected from the foundation of the world, saved through time, secure for eternity. But in those days, assurance might be lacking a little bit. Because a sinful life is an indication of the devil's work. Chapter 3, verse 8. Look at 1 John 3, 8. It says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. If you're practicing sinning, you know that that comes from the devil. And, and it maybe it indicates that God has not transformed you. But when God has transformed you, will, you'll no longer live in the ways of the world. He's talking about there. Like, look at verse 9. Look at how, how I want to say, ontological this is. Look at how characteristic this is. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. If you've been born again of God, if, if you've, you've trusted and His Spirit's come in you, changed you, you won't make a practice of sinning. I mean, that's the bottom line of what we're talking about. Because, verse 9, God's seed abides in him. He cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. When you're born of God, God changes you so you cannot keep on sinning. But, but if you're not walking in a, in a righteous way, maybe it's an indication that you've not been born again, that, that God hasn't come in. He hasn't transformed you if you continue just to walk in those old ways. And if you're walking those old ways, there's every reason to doubt. And 1 John is calling us back so we don't doubt. That's why he's saying here in chapter 2, verse 1, I'm right, don't sin, because in your sinning you'll doubt. But when you walk righteously, there'll be an assurance there. It's not too difficult. It'd be evident to all. In fact, look at verse 10 of chapter 3. By this, it is evident who are the children of God. I love what the New American Standard says. Is by this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. It's like everyone can see. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Here we see the obedience test and the love test. Both, both the same one, right? It, it does not walk in righteousness. That's the obedience way. Love his brother. That's the, the love test. And whoever doesn't obey or doesn't love is not a child of God. And it is plain and obvious. Well, it should be obvious. I remember a, a couple weeks ago after preaching this, um, someone uh, at church was, was talking about someone that this guy knew. And uh, the comment was made to me. He says, you know, I, 
I don't know if he's ever accepted Jesus into his heart. I don't, I don't know if he has a, a relationship with him. And um, so I had some knowledge about this individual. And, and I, in grace, said, oh, you, you know about this individual. And he looked at me and said, what, what are you talking about? And I said, well, think about my message today. And I, I forget where I was, but it was First John. And I uh, something about verse 6, if we... Say with we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness. We lie and do not practice the truth. Is, is this friend of yours, does he walk in darkness? Or is he following the obedience tasks or love tasks? Or like, like, like is he following in the ways of God? We just look at his life, just broad scale. Is he pursuing God or is he pursuing his own ways? Is, is he loving the brother? So is he involved in a church or a fellowship or anything like that? Is he, does he read his Bible? And um, came back. No. I said, well, then you know whether he has accepted Christ into his heart or not. The answer is no. He's lost. And we need to pray for him, and we need to share the gospel with him. But see, how evident it is, but that's how it works itself out. That as, as, you, as you deal with other people, you need to have some discernment because this really helps. One of the aims of First John is that you might know that you have assurance I mean, that is, that is the aim. But also, it's to see, okay, what sort of people are the people of God like? And it will help you then have some discernment about other people, whether they have eternal life or not. Now, I'm not talking about judgmentalism. I'm just talking here about, you know, whether they're following in the ways of God. Because if they're following in the ways of God, you have confidence. If they're not, you have doubts. And, and, and if they're not, then you deal with them differently. You, you you see that, they, that they're outside the faith and they need to come to Christ. And so the gospel messages come in there by way of conviction as you share that with them, as opposed to maybe the one who's struggling, who is a believer, who's following. The gospel message can come by way of comfort, as I, I trust it will today. Now, I'll just say this. One of the biggest changes in my life came when um, I was actually taught that not everyone who says they believe in Jesus actually do believe in Jesus. I mean, I grew up in a weak church that just said, well, you believe in Jesus, you're fine. Hey, we're all going to heaven. As long as everyone just kind of, whatever, raised a hand or said that they were in, they were in, then they were in and we were wonderful, right? And we just loved, it didn't matter the way you lived. That was, no, because see, you believe in Jesus. And, and see, there's a little bit of the half truth like we're dealing with in First John. Of, if it's every bit of true, you just believe in Christ and you're good. But believing in Christ will produce some things and some of the things that it produces is obedience and love and, and believing in the right doctrine. So there is like a half truth, but not the whole truth. And as a result, I grew up many years of my life being deceived, essentially, because I thought that anyone who claimed Christ would stand before Jesus and say, hey, let me in. And it took Matthew chapter 7. Not Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, let me into the kingdom of heaven. Many are going to name the name of Jesus. Say, let me into the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to turn. I never knew you. But I prayed a prayer, but I, I accepted you, but I said I believed in you. And you just say, he didn't. He didn't know me. He didn't follow my ways. Where's your obedience? Where's your love for the brothers? Where's your doctrinal test? You, you're believing things that are, so, that are so unclear in the Bible, right? In other words, you are believing lies. The Bible says one thing, you're believing something else, and 
and you're just not because my followers will follow in my ways. And I just say that had a, had a profound impact on my life just in terms of uh, dealing with people and seeing the world as it is. And I, and I saw the world a lot darker than I ever saw it before. I, before I had, you know, Pollyanna glasses on and thought, hey, everybody, we're okay because we all confess Jesus. And even if you're living a sinful life, but you can't. You, you, you can't be living a sinful life and in Christ. That's, that's the message of 1 John. And, and look at how tender, look at the heart of, of John, my little children. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Tenderly, compassionately bringing this out to his readers, calling them little children. Endearment. It's an expression of compassion and kindness. John loved his hearers like he loved his own children. In fact, considering them to be children, considering them to be weak and vulnerable, considering them to be in need of encouragement and help. And that's what encourages. If you, if you find people who are maybe deceived or deluded, address them gently as is appropriate. So now there's times to rebuke, admonish the unruly, right? encourage the faint-hearted, right? help the weak. But it's John here is very tender. He's, he's, he's tender here with those who he's convinced are believers. I write to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. These are believers, and he's trying to assure them. So there's some care and compassion here when he has every need to, to believe that they are. You know, there many people today are deceived. Like this gentleman that I, I told you about at the beginning of my message. He, um, so I shared the gospel with him. One of the things he said to me, he says, oh, well, God, God will forgive me of my sins. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't think so. I, I, I tried to sell it, say it as lovingly as I could. I said, I, I just last Sunday, I was preaching on 1 John. And, and do you know what 1 John says? It says in chapter 1, right? Um, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. You're, you're claiming you have fellowship with God. You're claiming that God's going to forgive your sins. You are lying. You're not practicing the truth. I could have quoted him, verse 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, a liar. The truth is not in him. It, the truth is not in you. You have no reason to believe that God is going to forgive your sins. He didn't, he didn't want to hear that either. Because he just wants to believe his own way. Wait, what, what a wonderful thing in life to be able to live the way that you want and God forgives your sins. But, in fact, that's somewhat true because when God changes you, the way you want to live is the righteous way and God will forgive your sins. But people live in sin and have no care for God, but yet this gospel message permeates our society enough that there is forgiveness in God in Jesus Christ and people hang on to the good. And don't listen to everything. And First John is abundantly clear that no, you need to pass this obedience test. Obedience for the commands of God. Obedience to the, the heart of God. Look at chapter 5, verse 3. This is the love of God that we keep His commandments. There's the obedience test. But, but notice the heart here. His commandments are not burdensome. This is non-burdensome commandments. This is Christianity. This is the desire that says, I love God. I want to keep his word. I want to do so delightfully. Well, I'm not talking about overarching oppression. I'm not talking about legalism like you had to stand up to something. I'm talking about do you have a heart's desire to obey and trust in the Lord? That's what his commands, what he says. And I just say this, don't sin. You want to deal with your sin? Don't sin. 
Now, in some regards, it's the message of the whole Bible because the Bible is, is replete with commands of what to do and what not to do. God has given us plenty to obey, even as Darren read in Proverbs 18 today. Lots of commands there. Gives plenty of direction in our life. However, that's not the whole story. That just God, God paints a picture of what righteousness looks like, lest we come up with our own imagination about what righteousness is. And John's encouraging us to be obedient to all the commands of Scripture. Look at how extensive he is. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so you may not sin. We could easily put in any way whatsoever. That's what he's calling us to. And he believes what he's writing is such good news that we will be stirred on that way. And, and this is no different. Think about Jesus. Remember when he said, um, what's the greatest commandment? Well, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. No exclusion. That's like total devotion to God. And the second is like to love your neighbors yourself. On this, hang all the law and the prophets. So you can put every law, every command in terms of, okay, is that a, a loving God with all my heart? Is that a loving my neighbor? You can put them all there. And it's pretty inclusive. And Jesus doesn't say, well, with some of your heart or, or love maybe some of the people. He's talking about loving all the people. And that's what you're not sinning in, in any way. Now, of course, we know that's impossible. And the reason we know it's impossible is because John said it's impossible. Chapter 1, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, right? In other words, if we say that we by nature are not sinners, right? We're, we're good and enlightened, we're holy folks. No, you're, you're deceiving yourself. You, you are sinners. We all are sinners. Verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, his word is not in us. So even John himself says that, that sin is a necessity, whatever. You, you sin, that's what he's saying. So when he's talking here about I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, he knows very well that you, you will sin, okay? But he's, he's like Jesus. Jesus knows fully well when he put those commandments out, loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, that people are going to fail that. But that, that's what God's standard is. That's what the call is. And he's, I think, in some regards, just, just raising the bar. And even we see that in our, in our next point here. First, don't sin. Second, deal with your sin. The second half of verse 1. But if anyone does sin, deal with it. Okay? Deal with by understanding and knowing, first of all, that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and then, then dealing with that, that we'll get into here in, in a little bit. But be, deal with your sin. And the surprising word in, in this phrase here is the word, if. I mean, John, what do you mean if? Didn't you just say in chapter 1, verses 8 and 10, that we are sinners by nature and that we are sinners by choice and that we will sin? And you say here, if. Anyone sins? Shouldn't it say what? What word should it say? It should say when anyone sins. Not if, John. It should say when. And so what's up with that? Well, I think that John is just raising the bar because too often we can have this defeatist mentality that comes. I've seen it enough. Oh, we're sinners. Woe is us. We just can't do anything. Therefore, you, you don't even try. He'll forgive us. There's not much to worry about. It's, it's not. We should worry about our sin. We should strive to holiness. We should seek His ways. In fact, look at chapter 3, verse 6. 
John's going to point out the necessity of righteous living. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. It's a present tense idea that it's not sin as a pattern is not going to rule and reign the life of those who abide in him. The life of a believer is a life of ever increasing holiness, ever increasing heart and passion for God. Oh, with dips and, and, and ups and downs for sure, but it's, it's ever increasing, ever, ever pursuing more love to the O Christ. There's a desire and there's the experience that takes place. Unless we become discouraged, though, about trying to live this sinless life. If you do sin, there's encouragement here. John gives us the remedy. He says, if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And these are some rich verses here. I'm just praying that God will help put these things in our heart to give us such gospel joy that we would would walk in His ways. We have an advocate. We have someone who will come alongside to us. So we deal with the Father. Now this word advocate is a, is a very interesting word. It's a very helpful word. It's the word paraclete. Paraclete, also parakaleo. comes from two words, para and kaleo. Para means like beside, like parallel lines. Kaleo means to call. So it's somebody who's coming alongside and, and talking or calling out. So it's got a whole range of meanings depending upon the, the, the context. But the best way to illustrate this word, and I, I think this, let's, let's enjoy the riches of this word, is that we got parakaleo. Here's the paraclete. Picture with me the, um, the coach of the mile runner athlete. Okay? This guy's running around the track four times. And, uh, you know, you run around the, the circle this way, right? The, the starting line is here. And by the time he gets three quarters away around, that's where the coach has, has put himself up, right? Right here before the final home stretch. And he looks to see what the runner is doing so he can paracaleo him. And it may just be that first time around the loop. He's coming in. Coach is looking at his watch. And he's saying, hey, you're slow. You got to pick it up. Pick it up. Pick it up. You're a little behind. Come on. Go faster. Faster. Go. Go on. Keep on. That's paracaleo. The guy needed encouragement, exhortation, like he, slacking a little bit, right? He, he should have been, whatever, at, at 40 seconds at this point, whatever, 50 seconds at this point where he was like at 52. And so he's got to, his pace isn't fast enough, what they talked about. So he's got to really be, be pushed on. That's parakaleo. Or maybe the second time around, coach can tell he's hurting, but, but he's close to the pack. He's just, he's just behind him a little bit, and he's just kind of encouraging him on. Come on, come on, I know you're, you're on path. You can do it. Come on, try to catch those guys. Come on, try that's paracaleo. It's like encouragement, like, like there's some discouragement. And then the, the last time around, the leaders have, have come and gone, and he's like really hurting and really sucking it up. He says, that's okay. You tried hard. You just finish, finish until the end. You can do it. And, and that's paracaleo by way of comfort. There, there, there's that word. It's used of the, the Holy Spirit is the one that comes alongside. And precisely what we need is precisely how the Holy Spirit calls into our lives and and you by the way you need to do that with other people as you see people in their needs or their trials or circumstances right if they're if if they're going through difficulty come alongside them encourage them if they're being obstinate rebuke them that's all parakala that's what we're talking about here and so the context here of chapter 2 verse 1 is is that of not, not so much being directed towards us. Because look what it says. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. So the paraclete isn't so much talking with us. The paraclete is, is calling alongside of God on our behalf. Which is perfectly translated in most translations. Every translation, major translation I looked at as, as advocate. 
He is, if you will, the defense attorney. He's, he's the one in the courtroom who, who goes to the bench and talks to the judge and, and gives the word exactly like we need the word to be given. Think about it. When an offer comes to the law, it's the Miranda rights are read. You know what the Miranda rights are, right? The Miranda rights. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you. You have the right to an attorney. You desire an attorney, can't afford one. An attorney be obtained before police questioning. It's the Miranda rights just to, just to protect us. And when coming before the judge in the courtroom, it's wise to lean on the counsel of your lawyer who will counsel you and, and tell you what best to do because the lawyer, think about it, has been there, done that. I mean, Tom, how many times have you come before the judge in your life? Hundreds, maybe, I don't know, many, many, many times. I'm going to trust Tom's counsel far, far better than I'm going to trust my own counsel. Right? And that's Jesus. We're trusting Jesus' counsel coming before for God because Tom can say, I've been there, done that. He's seen hundreds of cases. He's got a feel for how things turn out. He knows the, the intricacies of, of this particular judge. And he'll know, based upon your crime, he'll tell you when it's best to speak or, you know what, maybe best not to speak to this, this judge doesn't like that or maybe you're just you, just, you just be silent. Don't testify. Don't take the stand. Just take the punishment. And, and oftentimes the attorney speaks on your behalf. Your Honor, um, we would like this, or we, we're like talking for you. That's the word advocate here. That's what Jesus is doing. And, and think about when it comes to Jesus, Jesus can say, been there, done that. How many times has Jesus gone before the Father? We can't count the number of times, especially as he's seated at the right hand of God the Father. You think about your family, how many times you have conversations with your father, your son, whatever. You have countless conversations. Jesus is always communing with the Father, perfect triune harmony. But he has a feeling how things are going to turn out. He knows the Father very well. He has a feeling what's the best to say. He knows what to speak. In fact, he's given us his counsel to speak. Look at chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So when, when Jesus gives us counsel... As we stand before God, his counsel is this. Confess your sins. Don't, don't hide them. Just, just confess. Don't justify them. Don't explain them away. Just admit it. Just admit. And, and once you just, you, just, you just say what you did, and even make it bad, and I'll take it from there. So Okay. And so you just say what Jesus says, and you come, you confess your sins. You, like we talked about last week, just agree with God. Say, this is, this is what it is. And then Jesus will come, approach the bench, say, Father, I know my client's guilty. There's no doubt about that. He's confessed his sin. You've heard his testimony. And you know it could be worse. But you do remember what I did for guilty sinners, just like this person right here, right? How I suffered and I died in their place. I was the substitutionary sacrifice. You... Your anger for that sin was placed on, on me, and, and according to statute, his sin has already been punished. It's been punished on me. You, you, you can't punish him because he's already been punished. To punish him is double jeopardy because I was already punished. You must let him go free. You must forgive him. I rest my case. And that's what Jesus says. Now, this is all metaphorical, of course, but this is, this is how sort of it works using this imagery of 
Jesus being the advocate. <clears throat> and the result is that we know forgiveness is promised in verse 9. We didn't talk last week so much, a, a little bit we did, about how it is that he just forgives our sins. He, he can't just forgive our sins and let us go, let them go. That would be an unrighteous judge. He's a righteous judge because he punished Christ's sin in our place. How, how true is the hymn that we sometimes sing? Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. If you know it, we're, just, just say it with me, right? A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. Behold Him there, the risen Lamb, my perfect, spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the King of glory and of grace, one with Himself I cannot die. My soul is purchased with His blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. That's the reality of what we're talking about here. Jesus Christ the righteous. When you're discouraged or, or Satan is in there tempting you to despair, you just said, no, I'm going to look to Christ who has taken care of my sin. He's the righteous substitute. So God, took, He took the wrath so that I could know the joy and God listened to Jesus. That's what it's about. That's, that's the gospel. And that, that will stir you to seek not to sin. And in seeking not to sin, you will pursue a righteous life. There will be a measure of righteousness in your life. And then you know the assurance that indeed you have eternal life. Do you have eternal life? Do you understand the gospel? That's how it comes. Notice how Jesus is identified here in, in chapter 2, verse 1. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Jesus Christ the righteous one, right? He's the righteous one in the courtroom with the Father. He, he can plead for us because he's the perfect high priest. As we sang today, Jesus the great high priest offered his blood and died. My guilty conscience seeks no sacrifice beside, because he, being the perfect high priest, entered into the Holy of Holies. He, do you guys know what is taking place on Wednesday? What's Wednesday? Huh? It's not Palm Sunday. Just, just, just a second. It's not Palm Sunday. Wednesday, 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 Wednesday. I know, Tom, you know. Yes? Rosh Hashanah was Monday. That's close. Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur happens, Rosh Hashanah is, right, the, the top of the year, the first, and that happens in the seventh month, first day. That was Monday, actually Sunday night, but Monday. And then you just count ten days out for that. Maybe it was Sunday. Maybe it was Sunday, I can't. But anyway, this Wednesday, Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. You remember when we went through the book of Hebrews, when we got to chapter 16, we talked about the Day of Atonement, how the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies with the blood, and he'd, he'd sprinkle that altar ten, seven times with his finger, atoning first for himself. And then he would go out 
And having been cleansed himself, he could go and take that blood and atone for the sins of Israel. But he couldn't atone for the sins of Israel till he himself was purified. And that's what he did. And that's why Jesus Christ is so important that he is the righteous. Because Jesus couldn't offer a sacrifice for sins of others when he himself was a sinner. He himself had to be righteous. In fact, that's who Jesus is. He is the, the perfect high priest. He is the one who, who knew no sin, who was righteous and holy. It leads great to the last point this morning in dealing with sin. First of all, don't sin. But second, deal with your sin. And I just say that deal with your sin, go to your advocate. Go to your advocate with your sin. Right? Confess your sins and bring it to him and do what Jesus says. Just be quiet. Let him take care of your sin. Finally, realize that God dealt with your sin. This is past tense. This is, this is two. Verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Great word in this verse. Okay, which word of all these words, which word is the best word in chapter 2, verse 2? Help me. Which word is the best word? Propitiation. Now, some in the NIV um, uses the word atoning sacrifice for this word propitiation, which is, which is okay. But it's a little bit like, like kids, you're at dinner time, okay? And, and mom makes the meal for you and, and sets it there before you, and you taste it. And she says, kids, how was dinner? And you say, good. That's like atoning sacrifice, all right? Just, it's like, okay, it's a sacrifice that atones. But if you want to say propitiation, kids, how was meal today? Okay, okay, kids, you can try this when you go home, okay? How was your meal today? Oh, mom, it was scrumptious. See, the, there's a flavor behind that. Like, oh, that was really good. Or, or how, was your, how was your meal today? Mom, it was flavorful. Mom, it was savory. How's that word? Try that one out. Husbands, you, you guys can join in on this too. Or, or maybe wives of your husbands are cooking. I don't know how all things work in today, but savory. How about this one? Flavorful. How about this one? How, how was dinner today? It was exquisite. Now you can say that because I don't know what exquisite actually means with regard to food. Or how about this? It was delectable. See, see those words supposed to good? I do believe that's the difference between propitiation and atoning sacrifice. There is some, some level of meaning, but propitiation just raises it to another level of of detail and picture and magnitude and joy. It's that rich. In fact, I remember hearing of one pastor saying that learning the meaning of this word propitiation was worth the price and effort of all of seminary. Three years of study. Just gets one word. This one word was worth so much. So today, let's go to seminary together. It's really not that hard. It appears here. It also appears in 1 John 4.10. Uh, not 4.10. It appears in... Yeah, 4.10. That's where it appears. Right? That he... Uh, in, this is lo- in, in this is love. Not that he loved... We love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for sin. I'll probably bring it up again when we talk about there. Because it's such a marvelous word. When you think of this word, another word should come to mind. 
Remember we've talked about this before a couple weeks ago. I talked about it in brief. The word that comes to mind should be what? Wrath. Good. Wrath. When you think propitiation, think wrath. And so you start thinking to yourself, okay, wrath. What is, what is that? Um, we sang it today before the cross. The wrath that once was meant for me was all poured out on him. Okay. Uh, something like that. I didn't get those words quite right. But, but that when you, children, when you think of wrath, another word for that is anger, right? Wrath is one of these uh, big words for anger. Really angry is what wrath means. And that's tied up in the word propitiation. Propitiation means that you've calmed the anger. You've satisfied the wrath. You've placated it. It's not just atoning sacrifices if you've just kind of atoned something. No, that you, this wrath that was intended for you, you've kind of twisted it, changed it, transformed it, so now it is favor towards you rather than wrath. All right, here's, here's an illustration. All right, I'm just trying to give you a little. Suppose I'm a door-to-door refrigerator salesman. Refrigerator salesman. Okay, I thought about something. No one ever docks on your door and says, here, I'm a refrigerator salesman. Refrigerator salesman, okay? You get turned away so much. But pretend you are, okay? And, and you go around and you, you drive into these park, you know, the driveways and you knock on the door. It says, excuse me, I'm selling a refrigerator. Would you be interested in that? And most times people say, what are you talking about? And most often when a stranger knocks on your door, your immediate defenses are up. You're like, oh, I don't, I, I don't think so. Uh, no, you're already saying no before you answer the door, all right? So it's, it's, it's very difficult sales. And so, you know, you... you you talk to a thousand people and maybe one might be interested because they're not bold enough to tell you no is kind of what the deal is. So I'm trying to get something like someone who's kind of detested, okay? You, you drive in the neighborhood and uh, imagine yourself driving in the driveway and you miss, rather than hitting the brake, you, your foot slips off the brake, hits an accelerator and you <laughs> right through the garage door, crash! And so here you are, you don't even know this person, you're, you're not coming great, you know, it's no favor towards you, it's kind of antagonism. Here's a stranger driving up my driveway and then you crash the garage door. And so the owner of the house comes out irate and just yelling at you, screaming at you, okay, this is an ungodly person, so profanity is just laced there and mad, and you're like, whoa, I'm, I'm really sorry. That doesn't help because the guy's still got this garage door to, to fix, and, and you say, well, you know what, Here, let me make it right. And uh, what, if, what if you say this? He says, you know what, let me fix your garage door for you, and like, maybe I'll do something else on top of that for your, your house or you're thinking about some kind of project, maybe I'll, I'll do some more. And the guy says, funny thing. My wife and I, we were just talking about maybe putting an addition on the back of the house. I said, okay, I, I, I think I could do that. And he said, well, we, we got the contractor. It came back $100,000. The guy says, I'll do that for you. Because I wrecked your garage door, I'll fix your garage door and I'll, I'll, make, I'll, I'll, I'll do that extension for you. And so a couple months later, all said and done, the, the garage door was fixed to the tune of whatever, $300. And they got their brand new um, addition to their home out back. What's happened to that guy's anger? Kind of been transformed. He's no longer angry. Would he be angry with you anymore? In fact, I think he might buy a refrigerator from you. Is <laughs> how, how it might work. But that's, that's a little flavor of, of what happens. At one point, there is anger and, and venom, and then it's placated, and now there's joy and happiness and, and favor and communion and fellowship. That's, that's what propitiation means. God, because of our sin, 
because of his purity of nature, has to be wrathful. And has to hate that sin and be angry at that sin. And what Jesus did is came in, satisfied God's anger, and turned that anger into loving acceptance and embrace. Do you see why a word good just won't work? This is what propitiation is. It's what Jesus did. This is the, the heart of the gospel. Now, another word that might be helpful at this point to understand propitiation might be substitution. That's not a biblical word, but it's, it's all over the Bible in terms of understanding uh, substitution where it is. Particularly 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. That is, he laid down his life in our place. There's a substitution for us. It was, it was his life for our life. That's propitiation. That's substitution. Sometimes called the, the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ. It's paying this penalty, uh, judgment against us. That's what it is. Uh, John used it, speaking of Jesus, in John 10... Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. My life for the sheep. Jesus' life for the church. That's what he's talking about. Uh, John 10, verse 15. I lay my life down for the sheep. And how often it is that he, he laid down his life for us. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. 1 Peter three eighteen. Second uh, Corinthians five twenty one and so many more. We sing in Kids Club. For I delivered to you as of first importance that Christ died what for our sins. He died in the place of our sins. Now he died not only in the place of our sins, but he also died propitiation. Look what it says at the end of verse two. Um, and not for ours only, but also he's very specific here for the sins of the whole world. Now, you've got you to tread carefully here because some people believe this means every individual in the world. It, it, it cannot mean that. People say, oh, well, well look, it's just, it's just everybody in the world for the sins of the whole world. Listen, if Jesus Christ was the propitiation for the sins of every person in the world, there is no hell. Because that sin, that wrath has been turned away and God has no reason at all to send anybody to hell if it means everybody. It just can't mean that. And, and first John, John knows full well that not everybody is in Christ. Why, why would he write that you may know that you have eternal life if everyone has eternal life anyway? You don't even have to, to know it or enjoy it because there are children of the devil, chapter 3, verse 8. There are these people, chapter 2, verse 19, that were with us, but they went out because they never were part of us, meaning that they never were part of the church or with God's people. There are these people, chapter 2, verse 4, who are liars, who don't have the truth in them, who are condemned in darkness. We're going to look uh, a couple weeks from now, chapter 2, verse 9, people who are in darkness, they walk in the darkness, they don't know where they're going because the darkness has blinded their eyes. They're talking about chapter 2, 15 through 17. These people, the love of the Father is not in them because they're loving the world. And if God's love was in them, they would not love the world. And without God's love in them, they are destined to a life apart from Him. Or verse 17. Listen, how does God's love abide in the person who doesn't love others? It just doesn't work. So John knew full well. And you read the Gospel of John. You think about Jesus. Jesus is always talking about, hey, you're, you're sons of the devil. 
There are these two classes of people. So when people try to take chapter 2, verse 2, and talk about the sins of the whole world, Jesus is the propitiation for everyone. He's not the propitiation for everyone. Because hell exists. And, and what people might say is, well, what, he is the possible propitiation for our sins. Well, in, in some regards, that is, that is true, that, that there are, for every individual in the world, if they repent and come to Christ, Christ will be their propitiation. But this doesn't talk about possible propitiation. This talks about it's a done deal. It is established. When Jesus died on the cross, it was our sins yet to be committed that were nailed to the cross. Colossians 2, verse 14. Even something 2,000 years beforehand. But so how you understand this whole world? Well, I, I think you understand it like, like this. So just, just let 1 John understand, explain itself. Like verse 1, if anyone... I write these things, you might not sin. He knows that you're going to sin. And I'm pulling from John. John knows there's a hell. And so what he's talking about is the propitiation is coming for not just you and your little church, or maybe, maybe it means Jews, not just the Jewish people, but maybe even the whole world. Or, or maybe even it means he's the propitiation not for us only in Asia Minor, but also for those to other parts of the world that have never been reached, even those across the Atlantic Ocean in America, a world yet to be discovered that... When Christ died, he propitiated the sins of those who would believe. He really did it. And, and this is good news. A potential partici- part, um, propitiation is not good news. That means it might, well, he might be for me. Propitiation means he is for me. The wrath is gone. I no longer have to expect the wrath. I can expect the joy. So don't run from your sin. Just deal with your sin. First of all, deal with your sin by by shunning it. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Turn from your sin. Secondly, I just say, go to Jesus, your advocate, because he's the solution to your sin. I'm saying this to every single one of you. You go to Jesus, he will be the propitiation for your sins. You can talk with other people in the world. He can be your propitiation. Just believe in him and trust that God has dealt with our sin through the propitiatory sacrifice of Christ. Well, there we are, 1 John 1, 2, 1 through 2. Next week will be 3 through 6. Again, same thing. And John just regurgitates these themes over and over again, and may God use them in our hearts. Let's pray. Father, may you, the pure gospel was preached today. I pray, God, that you would satisfy us and help us in the, the truth and the reality of what Christ has done for our souls. Oh, God, in that we do rejoice. We pray for... Anyone here this morning who has not bowed the knee to Christ, or maybe there is sin in life, in life that's preventing assurance of salvation coming, I, I pray, God, you'd grant victory over the sin. God, that assurance may come. You want us to have assurance. You want us to know. God, so help us to know. Be our, our, our joy and our peace. Keep us this Lord's day. God, may we be worshipers of you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.